Landlord Law Podcast with Solicitor Tessa Shefferson. Hello and welcome to this week's Landlord Law Podcast. And this podcast is the companion to the Landlord Law Weekly Bulletin number 232 due to go out or will have gone out on Tuesday the 28th of November. A fairly quiet week. The only thing I'm really aware of is that my entire family has gone down the down with this cold, which my husband brought back from an event he went to last weekend. So I think I'm probably going to be keeping this bulletin a bit short. Sorry about that. So let's move fairly swiftly on to news. short news round this week. We do, of course, have the good news about the local housing allowance increase, good news for landlords and for tenants, although Shelter is inevitably saying that they want the increase to happen now and not in April, although I'm sure landlords would quite like the increase to happen now as well. There's a news item about the leasing scheme Wales, which apparently is being expanded. This is a scheme whereby private landlords can allow their properties to be managed by local authorities, presumably so they can use them to house the homeless, but it looks like there's a lot of grants involved, so it may be worth doing. However, generally, I would say to landlords, be careful about entering into any sort of rent-to-rent arrangement. You're probably okay with the local authority, but It seems that the Renters' Reform Bill is going to overturn the case of Recusen and Jepson, which was the case that said that rent repayment orders could only be made against the immediate landlord and not the property owner. So if this comes into law, it's going to mean that rent-to-rent arrangements are, are perhaps a bit of a risk for property owners because they are going to be held responsible for things they don't have any control over. So, so do bear that in mind if you are considering rent-to-rent. And then we've got a story saying that the U-turn on EPC ratings is welcomed by landlords. This is where Sunak has said that they don't have to upgrade their properties to a minimum of a C rating. Although I've seen other news items where landlords are not particularly happy about it. This is probably more likely to be the landlords who have already upgraded their properties. But it does look as if many landlords who were going to upgrade their properties have now decided not to do so, which is really quite bad news because, first of all, it's bad news for those tenants because the properties would be much nicer to live in after they've been upgraded. And secondly, it's not very good for the climate generally because the whole point of these works is it improves the carbon footprint of properties. So not a very positive story, that. And then finally, we got a story about Sadiq Khan, who it looks as if is buying properties to use for council houses, which will be very welcome for the many thousands of people on the uh, waiting list for council houses in London. And then I'd just like to speak a bit about one of the items in the snippets, derelict site on London's billionaire row. This is basically talking about the large number of empty properties that there are all over the country. And in particular, this article is about Bishop's Avenue in North London, 
which is one of London's most expensive street and is called the Billionaire's Row. But a large number of the properties there are not being lived in. They've just been bought as an investment property and they are actually deteriorating. And The Guardian has employed architects to do some plans and see and see how many social housing residences could be created on the sites. And they've drawn up a plan saying for at least one of these properties, there's room for 300 homes, which just goes to show how awful it is that these streets and these areas in in central London are just being abandoned when we really, really need homes for people, social homes in particular, but just any homes, really. It seems ludicrous that these properties are being left empty for such a long time. Clive Betts, the Labour peer, has been saying that government ought to consider forfeiting properties which are left empty for a long period of time so that they can be used for social housing. And I have to say, I have quite a lot of sympathy with that. So that's the end of news. Next, let's take a look at featured posts. So, featured posts. The first featured post is a blog clinic post. And the blog clinic is where I answer questions that people have sent in. And this question was sent in by a landlord called David, who says that he wants to allow his agreement to run on as a periodic because he doesn't want the tenants to sign a new tenancy agreement. And what does he have to do? So actually, this is quite an easy question to answer, because if you've got insured shorthold tenancy and you want the tenancy to run on as a periodic tenancy, you don't have to do anything because it'll happen anyway. Because Section 5 of the Housing Act 1988 provides that if tenants are still living in a property after the fixed term has ended, it will carry on as a periodic tenancy. You don't have to do anything and you can't stop it happening. David also asked whether he needs to get a new gas safety certificate. And the answer is probably not. You do have to keep getting new gas safety certificates and having the property inspected, but you need to do this on an annual basis. So the time when you do it relates to when you last did it. It's not connected to when the tenancy begins or ends. So the fact that the tenancy may have changed from a fixed term to a periodic doesn't mean that you have to reserve the gas safety certificate at that time. You need to serve the gas safety certificate after the inspection has been done when you've been given it by the gas safety inspector. So that's a fairly simple question and answer. The next featured post is one of my urban myths. Now, the urban myths is a series I wrote about 10 or 12 years ago, and they were quite popular, but of course they got rather out of date since then. So I'm rewriting them and updating them to take account of the law as it is today. And in essence, the answer to do you have to, have you got to evict a tenant once the Section 21 notice expired is the same as it was 10 years ago, which is that no, you don't have to evict a tenant if you serve a Section 21 notice after the notice period has expired. The Section 21 notice, it's sort of like a notice of intent. You're just warning the tenants that you may issue proceedings, but you don't have to. There's nothing about serving a Section 21 notice that says that you've got to then go on and evict the tenant. You may decide not to. It's up to you. However, there have been some changes about 
Section 21 notices and the notice periods. So first of all, you can't serve a Section 21 notice right at the start of the tenancy like you used to originally. I mean, some landlords used to serve Section 21 notices the day after the tenancy had been created. Now, you can't serve your notice during the first four months of the original tenancy. And there are also use it or lose it rules. So basically, you've got to use it within six months of the notice date or if the notice period is longer than two months, within four months of the end of the notice period. And if you don't start proceedings during that period, then you've got to serve another notice. So it's no longer possible to have Section 21 notices hanging about forever just in case you want to use them. And then if you decide that you're not going to use your Section 21 notice, you don't have to do anything about it. You just don't use it. You don't have to withdraw it or send them a notice saying, I'm not going to use this Section 21 notice now. You just don't issue proceedings. And a lot of people think that they have to do something and they have to formally withdraw the notice. But you don't. You just don't issue proceedings. And that's it. So that's the urban myth. The final featured post is a post I wrote in May of this year about guarantees. And I thought it might be useful to bring this one back because the featured video is about guarantees. And this post explains about the enforceability of guarantees under contract law and looks at when guarantees become enforceable. In particular, if something changes with the tenancy, because then it's not the same tenancy that the guarantor agreed to guarantee. For example, it could be with a higher rent or it could have different occupiers. So in those circumstances, the guarantee will lapse and you'll have to get the guarantors to sign a new one. So those are the featured posts. And then we also have the featured blog audio. And this is where we turn one of the blog posts into an audio post. And the audio post we're featuring this week is all about representation in eviction proceedings and the sort of people who are allowed to represent claimants in court actions. And you may or may not be aware of this, but under the court rules, well, it's the Legal Services Act, actually, only solicitors have the right to represent people in court claims, which means going on the record and doing all the work for them. Now, you may think this is unfair, but actually it's not, because if someone's running a legal case for someone and they don't really know what they're doing and they're not properly trained, they can make that person liable for an awful lot of money. For example, they may expose them to a counterclaim or they may run up the costs which they have to pay to the other side. Now, solicitors all have proper training. They have to do continuing professional development and they also have to have very expensive insurance. Now, I know this because I used to pay it because I used to be regulated by the Solicitors Regulation Authority when I had my solicitors practice. So this post also looks at a recent case where someone who was not a solicitor but the legal executive and ha who ran her business as a legal executive had been helping landlords in possession claims and she thought that what she was doing was okay. But then through this case, the judge ruled that actually the work that she was doing did constitute representing someone in proceedings and therefore she was in breach of the legislation. However, because she had been misled by her legal advisers and she had consulted her regulation authority and 
asked their advice and they hadn't told her that what she was doing was wrong, she had a genuine excuse. So I don't think she suffered any penalty. And I have to say, I've got a lot of sympathy with her because I think she did all that she reasonably could to ensure that she was acting properly. And it's not her fault that she was let down by her legal advisers. However, as I say in the audio, I do suspect that there are a lot of firms who are doing this sort of work without being properly qualified. And they, are, they did not take legal advice first in the same way as this lady did. And if you are someone who advises people, who advises landlords who are bringing proceedings for possession, I would suggest that you listen to the audio or read the post because you may need to review the way you do things. And incidentally, calling yourself a Mackenzie friend does not justify representing someone when you're not properly qualified or regulated. So that's the featured post. Next, let's take a look at the featured content of the week and the Landlord Law Forum. So let's take a look at this week's featured post. This is our frequently asked question, what is the situation if the tenants move out before the expiry of the Section 21 notice? And this is a situation where the landlord serves a Section 21 notice on the tenants. And of course, as we've said earlier, the landlords don't actually have to evict the tenants. They just serve the notice. But if relying on this, the tenants then go and move out and then become outraged because the landlords expect them to carry on paying the rent because they haven't given notice. And they say, well, we didn't have to give notice because you've served a Section 21 notice on us. Now, this situation is a bit unfortunate for the tenants because they are supposed to give notice to the landlord. And if they're during their fixed term, they can't end this early. And the Section 21 notice served on them by the landlord doesn't end it early. So they, they still got to pay rent until the end of the fixed term. And if they leave during a periodic tenancy, they're supposed to give their one month's notice. However, I go on to say that if you are desperate for your tenants to leave, it's probably best just to accept it, really, because if they then turn around and say, well, if you're going to be like that, I'm not going to move out, then you may be faced with a long and expensive eviction claim where you'll be stuck with a tenant for a very long time. So let's now take a look at the forum posts. And as usual, I give links to three forum posts on the Landlord Law Forum, which is where I go and answer members' questions, although other members answer the questions as well. And the first one is about telling the tenants before they rent a property whether it's subject to flooding. And the questioner says, is this something they should do? And my view is that, yes, it is something you should do. You do have a duty when you're advertising properties for tenants to give full disclosure and not just to tell them the nice things about the property. You have to tell them the things that could be problematic as well. And if you don't, then the tenant may have the right to end the tenancy early. The next question is about a property where there are old-fashioned lead water pipes. And the occupiers have now discovered that due to this, they have very high lead levels. And this has produced severe health issues. Now, the person who asked the question isn't the landlord of this property. And in fact, I think it's that the tenants are people that they know and they want to know what the tenants are supposed to do. And this situation is really a personal injury situation. So the tenants would need to speak to 
personal injury solicitors who might be able to get them compensation and perhaps also bring a claim in respect of the condition of the property because it's obviously dangerous. So that's the way it should be dealt with and hopefully the landlord will have insurance that will cover them for this. And then the final question is about an applicant who is a wheelchair user and they have asked if the property could have ramps fitted. And the property is actually in the process of being being sold and the purchaser have said that they're not going to fit the ramps. And basically my advice is that if you're selling the property, you've got to tell the, the um, applicants that the property is being sold and it may be that the purchaser isn't willing to do this. And I would suggest that they don't let the property before the sale and and let the uh, purchaser deal with it. As regards the question of whether the tenant is entitled to have ramps fitted or not, it'll probably depend on what sort of ramps they are, whether they change the nature of the property and, and how much they cost. So those are the three forum posts which I featured, although of course there are many more. Next, video of the week. Every week we have a video of the week and the video this week is a clip from the members training webinar I did a couple of weeks ago which was on rent arrears and the first part of the webinar I was talking about the various things that you can do to try and prevent rent arrears happening in the first place and one of the precautionary measures that you can put in place is taking a guarantee So this clip is all about guarantees and how they work. So I'm not going to talk any more about that now. Just go and listen to it and see what you think. And the tip of the week is also related to rent arrears. And basically, I'm suggesting that if you have tenants who are on benefit and they fall into arrears, it's well worth checking to make sure that they are getting the correct benefit. And there is a website entitled to which has a free benefits calculator. And if the tenants find that they have been underpaid, they may be entitled to a lump sum payment, which could clear the arrears. And I've known situations where this has happened. If you have problems with universal credit, I would like to recommend the universal credit service run by Bill Irvin. He specialises in this work and his service is very good. So that's a good place to go if you need help with tenants who have universal credit. Next, training news. And finally, training news. I'm no longer promoting the um, one day trainings course because it happened last week, went quite well. But I have now set up the next training webinar for members, which is going to be on eviction issues and which is going to take place on Thursday, the 14th of December. So if you want to register for that, I have sent out a mailing about it already with a registration link. Or you can go to the members dashboard, which is the place you go when you log into Landlord Law as a member, and you'll find a registration widget there and you can sign up from there. And then the bulletin has a couple of links for where you can find all our training courses and where you can buy our kits. And also a bit of a shout out for the Lodger Landlord website, which is a free website, which has a lot of information if you are someone who rents a room in your home to a lodger. 
So that's the end of this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll be back again next week with another Landlord Law podcast. Have a good week and thank you for listening. That was the Landlord Law podcast with solicitor Tessa Shepherdson. Sign up for the Landlord Law weekly bulletin at landlordlaw.co.uk slash bulletin.